Welcome everyone to Little Tokyo 2's new podcast series from startup to grow up. We offer short, sharp 20 minute overviews and interviews of successful founders, as well as 40 minute extended founder interviews with successful people who have graduated from LT2. I'm your host, founder and CEO of LT2, Jock Fairweather. Today on From Startup to Grow Up, we have the genius Nigel Greenwood himself from DNX and Machine Genes, the only person left in Australasia in the XPRIZE. Nigel, thanks so much for being here with me today. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. You're one of the most interesting guys I've met in the past couple of years. Nice. Or personally, usually I'm involved with sort of salesy entrepreneurs that are hustling to sell things that probably never existed. <laughs> However, you're kind of a guy that's created something completely new that never existed rather than trying to fix a problem that never existed. You're trying to fix the world's biggest problems. Yes. Yes. So, tell me a little bit or tell us a little bit about your history. All right. Um, I'm an applied mathematician. Uh, from a Queenslander, I did uh, firsts in pure mathematics and a PhD in applied mathematics at the University of Queensland. Um, when I was there, as a matter of extraordinary good luck,、uh, I fell in with an international team of very eminent, rather garrulous,、uh, and mainly elderly mathematicians and physicists. What's garrulous?、Uh, they're, they're, they're keen to point out when, well, they're, they're willing to point out when they think everyone else is wrong. I see.、Uh, so,、um, um, so, like me. Yes,、ah. yes. <laughs> and like me. <laughs> okay. You see, I, I, I was neither eminent nor elderly at the time, but I could tick the garrulous box.、Um, so,、uh, we were working what would now be called artificial intelligence, but it wasn't then. And、uh, they were working in industrial robotics, and they basically decided that every existing form of machine learning and AI was no use at all for their purposes. And, and what is now is of some use?、Uh, well, they would still say what exists now is of no, would be of no use to them. Okay. And,、uh, and apart from what I've developed, which is where I'm leading into with this. Yes.、Um, so,、uh, I said neural networks, for example, which is the current gold standard for AI, and people are pouring billions of dollars into artificial neural networks. Uh, neural networks have actually been around for a long, long time. Been around for you know, about 50 years.、Um, it's just that the computing architectures to make them a reality and make them practical are, are recent.、Um, and for example, these chaps were not impressed with neural networks at all because they, they're, they're very good for something. It's very useful、um, if you're trying to get a static pattern like a face in a crowd、mm-hmm. or a spoken word,、uh, then neural networks are, are, are brilliant. Uh, but they're very bad when you're trying to understand and control a complex dynamical system like a, a robot,、mm-hmm. which is what these guys were originally working on robot, industrial robots. I see. And so I、uh, joined their little、uh, group, and、uh, I was doing my PhD from 1990 to 1994 on the mathematics of strategy. So,、mm. again,、uh, very high order AI.、Um, And、uh, then the team disbanded because two of the three、uh, senior blokes died, and the third most senior bloke、uh, 
who's um, Berkeley's Emeritus Professor George Lightman, uh, retired. And so I was kind of last man standing with this work. Yes. And uh, it was still, still had a long, long way to go. Uh, but it seemed to me to be important work. Uh, th what they were trying to solve was an industrial robot pro problem, which is that you've got this massively complex thing, an industrial robot, just yes. this great big arm, picking yeah. and placing, maybe with a bit of vision, maybe with a camera. Um, and then you have a second robot arm, also picking and placing, and ideally what you'd like is these two arms to work together in the same space. But the problem is that these complicated bits of machinery rapidly suffer from wear and tear. So right. they become really idiosyncratic. So what you thought you had as a robot arm is not what you end up with. And what these guys wanted to do... <laughs> what does it end up with? Well, what, what you end up with is, is something there where the lubricants are a bit different because they've heated yeah. up and cooled and heated up and cooled and the cogs are a bit worn. Sure. And so everything, everything works a bit differently from how you thought it would work. Okay. And what they wanted to do was have these arms basically self-regulate. And, and then you could tell these arms to do complicated things, and they would do them, and they could do planning themselves autonomously. So the idea was, uh, actually very much like octopus arms, because right. uh, octopus arms have a lot of neural processing in the arm. Mm. And so the arms, which is why octopus arms look so weird, because uh, they're actually doing things without bothering about the, the, the brain of the octopus. Anyway, this is a problem they were doing. And uh, when the team disbanded, I was last man standing, and I said, well, um, I don't think this is much in demand with industrial robots mm. in the 1990s, but it's very, very relevant to medicine because there are very similar problems. If you have a chronic degenerative disease, then where you start up and where you end up uh, are, are different, mm. and you have to try to control this complicated thing mm. uh, based on partial information as you go along. And so then I moved over, first of all, into medicine, and... Um, I got kind of forced into the private sector because we couldn't get funding because basically it was just a small international team who right. had been doing this stuff. And so nobody else knew what they were doing or understood or were interested, right. sort of thing. And, and with um, an international team, yeah. in that instance, how do you actually communicate? I mean, we use, let's say, Google Docs or something where yeah. we can all edit at once. I'm sure when you're doing hyper-complex things, how do you do that? Yeah, it was... Um, it was an interesting problem because email was around in the 90s, uh, but email and phone calls, basically, and good old-fashioned hop on a plane and go somewhere. Yes. And so the conferences, uh, there are just one or two conferences that I would meet uh, these people, other than my thesis supervisor. And so the conferences would be really pretty intensive, sort of talking to people and understanding what they're doing. And a lot of it's written. A lot of it, people will be writing drafts of you know, manuscripts of papers. Yeah and send it over and say, basically, this is the, my latest thinking. Fax it. Yeah, well, yeah, fax <laughs> it, um, post it, and you get these yeah. great big sheaves of, <laughs> of stuff. And yeah. it's a case of, oh, read through that, this is what I'm thinking, what do you think about what I'm thinking? <laughs> two, sort of two weeks later. Two weeks later, yeah. yeah. Cool. So, um, so yeah, it, all, it was all really interesting. And so I moved over into medicine, and we couldn't get, I couldn't get any funding, even though I got um, different teams uh, in Oxford and Cambridge, we were actually looking at Parkinson's disease, the neuropharmacologists, and they thought the idea was, was great. In Australia, I got no traction at all, because in Australia, if you talked about AI in medicine, people just looked at you oddly and said, what, why? Mm. Um, but anyway, and so then I, after a few false starts, got into medicine, um, medical AI. Um, 
wrote a patent, which became a US patent, which is nice. Um, and then came up with a horrible discovery that the computing architecture I needed for my particular version of maths to work um, didn't, exist. didn't exist. Didn't exist. At least not, except in the, in the US government or something like that. And, then you, and then you called <laughs> up Apple and they fucking jammed you for an iPad or something to build it. No, no. Um, yeah, well, what, 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 um, what I ended up having to do was I lodged yeah, patents to, to secure where I had. And I just thought, oh, I've got to basically sit and wait for the technology to exist. Literally. Literally. And so I then went off and became an analyst in the Department of Climate Change, which was, which was actually really interesting, kind of fun, working with the UN, which was, which was interesting. Um, and then eventually NVIDIA got their, got their act together and suddenly in 2007, 2008, uh, the GPU cards were a thing. And suddenly I realized that the technology now existed to actually implement my mathematics. And um, then Queensland Department of Health Bless them, uh, were persuaded to chuck in some money. How good! And uh, and it's very much um, on the medical side of things. It's funny how who you know becomes relevant. Because I had an, an old friend of mine who, in undergrad at uni, she was uh, such as get it, like getting people on your board for credibility sakes. No, well, just just getting ideas. Okay, so someone I someone I used to go drinking with in undergrad, and we would drink appalling cocktails and. I usually ended up... I don't uh, want to know where you ended up. <laughs> and uh, I way, her, her rock wheeler on more than one occasion would sort of lick me in the face and so <laughs> that would be my good morning. Um, I, I might have sleeping... I was sleeping on the floor. It'd be a party. She was off elsewhere. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, it's a very, very old, very good friend of mine. Um, came back and was, became a, a very eminent endocrinologist. And that was uh, Jenny Gunton, Professor Jenny Gunton. And um, what's that? The, her name? Is no, no, no. What does she do? Endocrinologist. Yeah. What so, is that? Oh, I see. Uh, hormones. Hormones. So she, in particular, is a diabetes expert. In I fact, see. she's uh, an internationally renowned. And here's the segue. Yes. And uh, I, when she came back to Australia, I uh, came went down to Sydney and had coffee with her. And, sort of thorough going preach session about how horrible life was because I had this amazing technology uh, but we originally wanted to do Parkinson's and then that didn't work for various fundamental commercial reasons and how the technology was now becoming available to do stuff and yeah and she looked at me as far as a loon and said why don't you do diabetes because it's all there the sensor data is there there's a desperate need for it you've got the capability mm. so do that. Mm. So uh, that's what ended up happening to move, move me to diabetes. And um, uh, a bit of interesting stuff in terms of the underlying machine learning and AI. Um, the dominant form of AI in the world is neural networks and that's based on the metaphor of the human brain. And what my stuff does is very, very different. It's what's called, it's a form of evolutionary <coughs> machine learning. Mm. And we use ecosystem dynamics as inspiration. So predator-prey, evolution, uh, migration, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So uh, use that. you can actually build a computing uh, architecture out of that, which works very, very well and has really important advantages over AI, uh, over neural networks in AI. So yeah, so that's what we did and what we're doing with diabetes. So mm. we're literally evolving uh, personalized models 
uh, of uh, insulin glucose dynamics within the human body for each individual person with type 1. Mm. So when you had, you'd explained it to me previously, what, uh, what I really got was you kind of had like some data capture over here on a diabetic, for example. Yeah. You had some potential anomalies or events that could happen. Yeah. And somehow your algorithm can kind of take that original data and join them as such. Yeah, well, it's, um, what it does is it gets, and this is, again, one of its huge advantages over neural networks, is that uh, neural networks, you're just throwing huge amounts of data at something, and it's like teaching a, a puppy dog. It will find patterns. You don't ever know whether they're the correct patterns. You just hope they are. Um, whereas with this approach, you take the equation. So diabetes, uh, medical researchers know uh, pretty closely what the actual underlying equations are that describe diabetes in the human body, how it manifests with blood glucose and insulin and so on. Uh, but the problem is that they don't have any numbers, what we would call parameters, mm. uh, how the numbers work for each individual. And they're all different for each individual, so you can't do any population-based work. It's, it's worthless. Mm. And so what, what we do is we get an individual medical history and we get these equations and we force the two to converge via evolution. Mm. And so what you end up with um, is, are these personalized models that have literally evolved over generations to fit that individual medical history. Yes. And then at the end of this, so then you have, have these personalized models. And then we pass it to my actual AI, the, the actual thinking bit of, of the machine. And I like to call it a slightly paranoid and anxious AI because it looks at these models and it says, okay, there are still some significant ambiguities. And so what it does is it creates an adversary. And so the, the prime AI, the main AI, creates an enemy AI. And the prime AI says, all right, I want to play a game. I want to use these models to design a good strategy for insulin dosing. Mindful that for someone with diabetes, um, their blood glucose is usually far too high, and that is doing damage. It causes risks of blindness, kidney failure, mm. etc. And so they're trying to apply insulin to get their blood glucose down to a desirable target. But if they overdo it, then the insulin pushes the blood glucose too low, and you can induce a coma. And when you put insulin in the human body, it can keep working for hours. And so that's why insulin dosing for people with type 1, well, for a lot of people with type 1, not everyone, uh, is a bit of a nightmare. And so they usually uh, are very um, conservative with their insulin dosing, which means the blood glucose still remains too high, which means they still have worries about long-term serious mm. health complications. So what we do is our prime AI says, okay, I'm trying to design a really good individualized insulin strategy for this person. Uh, I know that there's still a lot of ambiguities left in these personalized models. So I'm going to create an enemy and I'm going to design the strategy and the enemy is going to try to manipulate all the remaining uncertainties to screw that up to completely. get it. Yeah. To, yeah, to, to, to either force the <laughs> uh, blood glucose to be far too high or far too low mm. and just, just ruin my day. And then my job is then to design a counter strategy mm. to that, which nonetheless steers it properly. And what that is, in effect, is really, really tough robustness testing. Yes. And so we did a simulation demonstration of this in 2012, and the Garvin Institute in Sydney, uh, Garvin Institute of Medical Research, administered it. And over 55 simulated days, we achieved stable control to target 
99.8% of the time. And the really interesting thing about this, which you're referring to in terms of extreme events, mm. is that at the whole time, the, the primer AI knows what it knows. And this is a huge advantage, again, over neural networks. The primer AI, if you ask it, would say, all right, I think that the model is this. I think the patient's parameters are these values. And so I am designing this strategy. And what that means is if something unexpected happens, whereas a neural network, you have to have everything in training data that you need it to try to cover. Uh, with our AI, it can see something completely unexpected and say, I've never seen that before, but I know what I know. And so I can design strategies again using against. the same approach against this. Yes. And I can solve it. So by doing that in the diabetes sense, yeah. you were, I mean, in medical, in, in any sort of medical device, software prediction, it can take forever and a day to get all the way through to commercialization, right? Yes. 10 years of clinical testing, then can be so on and, you know, we're talking 15, 20 million to get all the way, right? Mm. It's, it's, there's big risk as an investor or someone to go behind that. So you were able to figure out, just like you explained with the robotic arms that sort of went and turned into kind of like the diabetes scenario, yes. back to robot, sort of robots or machines again, right? Yes. So tell us about that. Yes, well, um, diabetes, I mean, diabetes, it's much shorter than other medical applications because the US government has realized that diabetes is a huge problem. So the US FDA has created what it calls a fast track. So it's still, it's, it's down to a few years. Um, but nonetheless, I was having enormous problems getting uh, investment in Australia to push you know, this novel technology uh, to, to, to deal with diabetes. So I looked around and said, all right, I'm going to step sideways. I'm going to keep the diabetes work alive and kicking, but what I need to do is diversify and find another application that will keep the wolf from the door. Yes. Now, I'm a thing called, uh, well, okay, so first of all, uh, as you said, just as the leap went from machines to medicine, so too logically, the leap then goes back to machines. You say, what is a really, really valuable bit of kit that's very complex that people desperately need to run properly? And, um, and you know, it, it, any failures are very, very expensive. And costly. Costly. Maybe livelihood. Well, yes, yes. Well, lives can be lost, yes. Mm. And so the short answer is aviation engines. And uh, it's completely an artifact. So it's, it's completely artificial. So you can sit down and you can write the equations for it. But analogously to a chronic disease, uh, because aviation engines operate under very high temperatures and pressures, they change. And they change really quite quickly. And so, whereas when you start, uh, an engine straight off the assembly floor might look the same as any other, once you've been flying with the thing for a couple of months, you've got a very individual engine. It has become individual. So then the problem is, again, how do you um, tell that when it's being quirky, if that's a benign bit of quirky behavior, mm. or if that's the beginning of a serious malfunction that will cause massive failure or death, you know. And, it, and even if it doesn't cause any kind of death, it will be profoundly expensive when you remember that an aviation engine is anything between 13 million US, about 35 million US dollars per engine. Per, 
yeah. per engine. Next time you see four engines hanging off an airplane, just think of the capital cost that's yes. hanging off that wing. Yeah. So you've been, in essence, testing with Rolls-Royce. Yeah, because um, I'm a thinker of Spitfire Memorial Defence Fellow. Australia, uh, the, old, the, the Australian Spitfire pilots um, were offered a memorial uh, back in the day by the Australian government. And they actually said, no, no thanks. And the Australian government was baffled and said, why? And they said, well, we don't want just a physical memorial uh, because whenever there's an invasion, the first thing the invaders do is knock over all the memorials. And so they said, well, we want to do something a bit different. We want to create this fellowship that uh, once a year or once every couple of years, an Australian scientist who's doing something key in defence-related topics gets a bit of funding and a bit of recognition, and you know, that helps them along their way. So I'm actually, I think I'm the only one who's got it twice. And uh, when they set up the fellowship, um, uh, because Rolls-Royce, of course, made the original engines for the Spitfire, mm. the surviving Spitfire pilots tapped Rolls-Royce on the shoulder and said, hey, how about you chuck in a bit of money for this, for this fellowship? Mm. Uh, so it meant that when I was then looking for someone to talk to with aviation engines, I knocked on the door of Rolls-Royce and said, hey, I'm a Spitfire fellow. You chucked in some money back in the day for the fellowship, so that gives you first dibs. If you're not interested, that's fine by me. I'm happy to talk to you know, GE or Pratt & Whitney, mm. but I just wanted to pay it forward mm. and, uh, and contact you first. Mm. And so they did technical due diligence, and uh, of course at that stage all I had to show them was the diabetes work. So uh, I gave them all this medical work and said, yes. ignore the medicine, just look at the capability in terms of artificial intelligence, uh, what do you think? And they, they loved it, uh, although the, the due diligence was like an oral exam from hell. It was a nightmare. It's like, they said things like, oh, we really like the way your AI is modulating blood glucose using insulin. What do you think the equivalent of that would be in an aviation turbine engine? At which point, you know, you're pinching yourself saying, please said, wake up. Please I don't know, up. give us three years. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so we, um, we showed, over a three-year project, we showed that we could evolve and grow computational models of aviation engines as if they were organisms. And uh, again, massive advantages over neural networks. So an artificial neural network will take, would need you know, four to six months worth of data to build out a model. And for Rolls-Royce, we demonstrated, uh, ideally, we'd want about 30 minutes of sensor data. Although we showed that you could actually do something meaningful with as little as four minutes of sensor data at four hertz. And so, you know, radically, radically mm. you know, different way of doing things. Uh, and the other thing is, it, it, so it's a form of digital twin technology, but it's an explicit digital twin. Uh, if you use a neural network for a digital twin, you end up having a conversation with a sphinx. It's a case of something weird's happening in the engine. <laughs> so to ask the digital twin what's happening and it will respond with a very enigmatic set of probabilities and you're thinking, yeah, that doesn't really help me. Whereas our approach is literally a, a, an explicit model. It shows you everything and it says, Oh uh, yeah, I think the parameter for this seal is this. I think the parameter for the friction on the shaft is this. This is all what I think it is. And because it can be done on less than 30 minutes of data, you can do it repeated snapshots, um, say, over a couple of months. And so you build up a time series. And it also means that unlike uh, a neural network where 
you can't deal with so-called black swan events um, for it to recognize what's happening in this, the training data. With us, because it's explicit modeling, the uh, software can say, okay, the parameters for that O-ring over there are shifting over time. Mm. I have never seen that before. I don't know what it means, but I don't need to know what it means. All I have to do is be able to tell you that it is shifting. It's, it's happening. happening. Yes. It's happening. And so I think you should look at this. Although, of course, the interesting thing is with our form of AI, it could probably work out a likely event because all it would then need to do is say, all right, let's assume that it keeps shifting over that to this white. value. Yeah. yeah. Now let's do a projection. Yeah. And, of course, the, the likely projection is boom. Yeah. Uh, and so it can say, well, yeah, it's going to explode if you don't do something at some stage. So there's there's plenty of sort of interesting and I'm sure interested people that will listen to this. Mm. Tell me, timeline, funding required, and potential outcome of DNX and machine genes. Okay. All right. DNX, so uh, the world's first genuinely machine intelligent artificial pancreas. Uh, other companies like Diabolub are doing fuzzy logic and calling it AI. With all due respect to them, it really isn't AI. What we're doing is genuine machine intelligence for an artificial pancreas. We're aiming to raise uh, up to 10 million US dollars uh, to do a clinical study uh, this year at Westmead Hospital um, and then go on to the beginnings of regulatory trials. We want to get um, an artificial pancreas out there. Um, well, by 2022, we want we want to actually have it deployed uh, in the market in the United States. Uh, so that would be 10 million now, and then we'd go for one more round to get through the remainder of the regulatory mm -hmm. uh, processes. Um, and we've had a bit of recognition with with that. I'll get onto it in a second. We still have time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll finish with the with that with, with that. the big okay. bang. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, so, so that's, that's uh, diabetes neuromathics, and we're aiming that, our target segment within type 1 diabetes are the people with so-called brittle type 1. They're the people with the most extreme variations of blood glucose on a day-to-day -day basis. Horrific variations. And they're precisely the people who most need an artificial pancreas, and who other artificial pancreas developers are avoiding, because it's, from their viewpoint, technically just too difficult. The, the, the technology is not incremental. You have to do something radically different for, for um, an artificial pancreas to help people with brittle type 1, and that is precisely what we've done. Okay. So a completely new uh, technological base uh, to make sure we can help them. And then once you help them, you start by climbing Everest, then it's just an easy downhill across the rest of the spectrum for type 1. So that's, that's uh, diabetes neuromathics. Uh, then turbine machine genes, we're aiming to raise uh, approximately 5 million US for turbine machine genes. We're wanting to, we, we did a, a demo for Rolls-Royce and then uh, that was done July last year. And then we established that we needed uh, yeah, about 5 million US from there to get a commercial product in the market within one and a half years. Uh, unfortunately, Rolls-Royce themselves have had a massive internal restructure. So uh, we're striking out on our own uh, to, to, to build uh, the product ourselves and then re-engage with you know, Rolls-Royce, Pat & Whitney, GE, etc. So about 5 million US uh, to do that. We also have applications there not only in civil aviation but military aviation, 
and uh, oil and gas power generation. Basically anywhere where there's a complex uh, turbine engine uh, that needs to be understood and monitored because it's mission critical and there are a lot of them across the world, all very high value. In terms of credibility, yeah. there are two major things that have happened recently, Recently, mm. right? Mm. XPRIZE, mm. Harvard. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, Harvard, the, the, the uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Stanford. Stanford. Stanford, yeah. That, that's a conversation that's still ongoing. Uh, yeah, okay, so first of all, the IBM Watson Artificial Intelligence X Prize is a race that started in 2016. It's an X Prize, like Space X Prize, etc. These big races every few years across the world uh, to get the best teams in the world to, um, to solve particular tough problems. Uh, usually with a fairly big prize at the end of it. Um, the IBM Watson AI X Prize started in 2016. Uh, it's basically a race to 2020 to use AI to help address some of humanity's most pressing problems. Uh, where uh, we're in, we, we entered the race in 2016 in Team Machine Genes, which was um, diabetes, neuromathics, turbine machine genes, and a third pure R&D company of mine called Evolving Machine Intelligence. And um, in 2016, there were 683 teams worldwide. There are now, as of December 2018, 30 teams left. Uh, we're one of the 30. And uh, as of December, they've announced that we're one of the top 10 teams in the world for the, for the X Prize. So that, and that's showcasing the diabetes work, although of course it's the same platform across both the diabetes work and the engine work. Uh, and then uh, we're also currently talking to the Stanford uh, Graduate School of Business uh, because they do some small scale investments uh, as part of their MBA program. And uh, so they contacted XPRIZE and wanted to have a look at some of the promising XPRIZE teams and we're one of the teams that they're currently talking to. Um, another thing is that of the of the top 10 XPRIZE teams, uh, NeurIPS in December in Montreal is the world's top artificial intelligence conference and of the top 10 teams there were only two of them that were actually asked to present independently at NeurIPS uh, in the competition workshop and we're one of them. And that's how you finish with a bang. <laughs> And that's it for another week with our podcast series from startups to grow ups. If you enjoyed that, you can find out more about Little Tokyo 2 on www.littletokyo2.com and you can find more of our podcasts on soundcloud.com forward slash Little Tokyo 2. Thank you and speak to you next week.